0991000. Talk and then your message to 87222 uh, is how you want to get in touch. Let's head to Latin America then. Some, um, uh, some really difficult conversations to have in that part of the world, actually. Brazil now becoming the second country. And, uh, official registered deaths. I think, there was, of course, it depends sort of how you are uh, registering those and how you are um, how you're getting to those numbers, are, I guess. Uh, it comes amid growing political tension just days after the country confirmed more than a million coronavirus uh, cases. There have also been some protests in the country. Let's uh, head to that part of the world now, to Mexico, where John Bonfiglio joins us. John, my man, how are you? I'm good, Daryl. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Um, I think it's worth just us taking stock of what is a really grim toll of 50,000 deaths. But um, uh, given the direction of travel, not unsurprising. No, for a while now, haven't we, in terms of, you know, the way that things were shaping up in in Brazil in particular. I mean, across Latin America, but in, in Brazil. I think just to give a bit more context to those figures as well. So, as you say, Brazil now, 1,100,000 confirmed cases and over 50,000 um, deaths, but under-reporting um, and lack of testing means that some experts are saying the real rate is 15 to 20 times that. And a recent survey in Sao Paulo suggested that conservatively, for every one case confirmed, there are six um, individuals who actually have coronavirus in, in the country. And internationally, um, if we are now at the point at which we're over 8 million cases confirmed, one in eight, obviously, uh, over 1 million are in Brazil. And that is a, a, a huge number of people that we, we have considered before. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it might be helpful if you ran us through a couple of those, uh, a couple of those, excuse me, now. Yeah, for sure. I think we, we've spoken before about, you know, obviously the, the horror and the difficulty that coronavirus directly causes in terms of, you know, deaths and loss, um, and not just in terms of directly because of the disease itself, but also the economic downturn and how that's playing out across the continent and having, you know, a really significant effect, which to my mind, it's going to take the, you know, the region, a generation to, to get over uh, economically. But, but also, if you look at the situation, for example, amongst indigenous communities um, in the Amazon that already, you know, were, had the highest cause of death in those remote communities was respiratory disease. And as things stand, um, there's a whole generation of elders, of indigenous elders, that are being lost um, to their communities, to their native nations and their, and their tribes. And with that goes, you know, a loss of history, a loss of culture, a loss of medicine. Somebody I was speaking today, to, today spoke about these elders as living libraries that are that are being lost and, and the, the sheer decimation of, of this memory that's taking place uh, across the region. Mm. Which is, I mean, you know, when you consider that, it's so hard, isn't it? It's so, so hard to, to come to terms with that being uh, being the case for those people. Yeah, and, and one of the um, the political points that these people are making is that actually it, it behooves um, Jair Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, not to do anything about it already even before this this crisis hit and his extractionist policies vis-a-vis -vis the Amazon, um, these peoples were a hindrance to him. So, so it's kind of, they would argue, so these indigenous communities would argue that the virus is actually doing him uh, a favor and actually him sending in people from the cities to 
vaccinate against other diseases or take in um, food packages, etc., which they don't want to receive, actually exacerbates the spread of this virus um, and actually is generating a movement whereby a lot of these communities are, are fracturing themselves off and going deeper into the jungle to avoid contact with the white man. There's protests happening in uh, in Brazil as well, isn't there? At the I think both pro and anti government demonstrators gathering. Yeah, I mean Bolsonaro's pro wing have been demonstrating. You know that they demonstrate on a weekly basis outside the the presidential palace, and he goes out to to join them um, fairly regularly. But because of the 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 different variations on the lockdown that have been taking place in, in Brazil over the course of the last few months. The demonstrations have been very kind of private on, on people's balconies and so on. But but now that the economy is opening up, people are taking to the streets again and, and, and differing demonstrations are having to be to be kept apart. But they're calling directly for Bolsonaro to um, to resign. Obviously, he's not going to do that. But the political alongside in parallel to the health crisis that is striking Brazil is a political crisis in which there are now two Supreme Court investigations into Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro's um, allies uh, into uh, initially into the spread of fake news, which his sons are um, significantly involved in um, hypothetically, um, and also the an abuse of power. Uh, which, you know, is not really controversial because he's very open about the fact that he wants, you know, when Congress or the Supreme Court don't agree with him or when pr procedure doesn't agree, he's just going to go out and do what he likes. And that's exactly what why the Supreme Court are investigate, investigating him for the um, for his appointing of or attempted appointing of a police chief into to head up the, the Rio police agency because the, the current. Uh, Rio police chief that was there was investigating his sons and he didn't quite much like that. So all of this is, un is unfolding as we speak and, and we're not sure where it's, where it's going to go. But for sure, the, the protests that are taking place countrywide against him are calling for his resignation and also his, his impeachment by the Senate. And all the while, how is daily life in, in Brazil playing out for people? Well, kind of. The, the same, but not the same. I mean, you're used to this, right? In the UK and everywhere else, this new normal, whatever that is. I mean, you can basically go out and do whatever it is that you sort of want, but, you know, within certain existing restrictions and social distancing and so on. Um, and, and as ever with these things, these, they, they play out very differently depending on what community you belong to. I mean, if you are, you know, 12 people to a room and if, you know, if you live in a, in a high rise luxurious apartment block in Copacabana and want to go down to your local mm. restaurant for a, for a drink and so on. And actually that's been one of the political issues that's been unfolding across the region also because a lot of the indigenous communities and, and the darker skinned individuals actually blame um, the white-skinned, moneyed Latin Americans for bringing the virus over from Europe in the first place and having, you know, attended parties in Madrid and Paris and so on. Um, and then being the instigators of the, um, of the disease in Latin America. And that means that that's been one of the flashpoints between, between left and right, um, in the region. In fact, the Mexican health minister only yesterday, um, directly made that point. I mean, obviously because, you know, in these kind of fraught, public conference situations, you, you, when you've got a, a death rate of 12%, as the Mexican health minister has, you want to throw mud 
you know, you want to shine a light wherever else you possibly can other than at your own door. But still remarkable nonetheless that he came up with that as being a primary reason as to why coronavirus reached Latin America. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, all the while as well, you to, to rise, don't they? Uh, John, I, I mean, I know it's a very difficult thing to predict, but in, in terms of numbers and in terms of uh, uh, people affected, is there any sign at all that it may at some point level off? That is the $60 million question. Um, people fear, you know, where I am at the moment, but across the region, they fear when when is this spike going to end? And, and the worry is that they don't see, I mean, it has coincided in, in Latin America these spikes with the end of lockdown so nobody sees there being a situation in which actually anything that is taking place or you know is actually going to flatten the curve as the as the phrase goes i guess if you're looking for you know chinks of light in a going back to the brazilian context the brazilian cities do seem to have at least stemmed the acceleration of the flow of infections in in those areas i mean that the, the infection is now uh, spreading like wildfire in the Brazilian interior, but certainly in the maze like Rio and Sao Paulo, when we spoke a few weeks ago, Sao Paulo was at 95% hospital occupancy, and they thought that it was, you know, they, it was all going to go completely wrong for them there, and it did, but not quite in the way that that was that was expected in terms of it, com- you know, completely losing control of the situation. But who knows where where it's going to go? I mean, Brazil. One million, uh, as we mentioned before, Peru, 250,000. Chile is spreading like wildfire at the moment. Also 250,000, et cetera. So it's, it is firmly ensconced in the, in the continent and everybody is hoping for a, for a swift end, but, uh, you know, nobody's putting any money on it. What about the idea of, um, I mean, these countries all, all, all of course share a landmass, don't they? They share a continent. Um, is there any sign of cross-border cooperation, um, the government sharing information, sharing tactic? No, not really. The only the only context in which that is visible here in the in the region is with Cuban doctors. I mean, um, Cuban doctors are famed the world over now for well, for, have been for you know a number of decades and generations for having um, uh, an incredible capacity, an incredible per capita. You know, medical professional professionalism in the country, and they regularly export doctors to different parts of the of the region in order to assist. So, where I am at the moment in southern Mexico, there's a fairly heavy presence of of Cuban doctors, and that's the case across the region. Beyond that, there's very little movement, um, you know, in terms of support across those borders, and and in fact, the reverse. So, if you look at the Paraguayan context and its its border with with Brazil, they are emphatically uh, refusing to allow anybody to, to 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 cross that border because power a bit of a lid on the situation there, and they certainly don't want to open themselves up to to the Brazilian problem. Mm. Um, elsewhere in uh, in Mexico, John, I, I want to pick your brains about some of the um, some of the violence, uh, cartel violence in particular, um, in a in a specific state in uh, Mexico. What's happening here? Guanajuato, which is north of Mexico City. I, I guess this is what you're referring to. In a, yes, in a I, just, town I, called, I, just, uh, I just thought I'd let you do that pronunciation rather than me, <laughs> rather than me picking up. Go on. <laughs> uh, thanks, Daryl. Um, yeah, in a, in a town called Celaya. It's kind of a weird case, this, because it definitely doesn't conform to the standard cartel situation. The standard cartel situation, uh, I mean, there, you know, there's probably maybe, I don't know, eight, ten significantly sized cartels, and they obviously focus on the movement of 
uh, of narcotics on on drugs north of the border. But but of course they are involved in you know every other aspect of money making from um, I don't know uh, from construction through to um, avocado growing and extortion etc. But this strange situation problem with with cartel violence. But this small cartel called the Santa Rosa de Lima cartel emerged about a year ago and it was it was um, based around an even harder word to pronounce here called the huachicoleo which is basically the illegal tapping of uh, fuel out of pipelines in the country which is then sold off illegally and generates a lot of money for cartels so this cartel in particular doesn't actually involve itself too much in in drug trafficking but but it's it's trafficked materials if you like are our fuel, our gasoline, um, and they've had a lot of pressure put on them by the relatively new president still, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who when he came to power um, said formally that he was going to stop this from happening. And also because this um, cartel is relatively small, there's also an adjoining cartel, the Jalisco New Generation cartel, which is much bigger, which wants to kind of clamp down on them as well. And that's led to, um, a couple of days ago, to um, the military going in, making 25 arrests, including the, the mother of one of the um, of the cars, then went a little bit berserk and set fire to um, to buildings and vehicles and so on. And that's led to this particular spike in violence in which uh, you've got a 1,000 dead in this really small area. I mean, the town where the cartel comes from is only 2,000 big. Like it's, a, it's a tiny little, you know, backwards village, really. Mm. Um, but it, it, they are at the, at the epicenter of a, of a violent storm, really, which, as ever, with these things, it's not specifically about the movement of product backwards and forwards, but it's about territory and about controlling of territory and um, and the imposition in those in those spaces as well. And that, that's where that recent spike has, has come from. When you say the president has, has sort of committed to trying to do something about it, what what does that mean? Well, when he what he meant at the time was he's very pro industry and the state based um, gasoline producer Pemex, Petrol of Mexico, was losing a lot of money at the time uh, and he was undertaking a number of restructures and also preparing it to be to be sold off or continuing the, the sell-off. So he basically wanted to cease the illegal tapping of, which actually also was leading to a lot of deaths because when you illegally tap a, a massive pipeline, you know, with a with a hammer and a chisel, things are apt to go wrong. They don't mm. tend to just, you know, you don't normally just te- tend to get a steady trickle of gasoline that comes out, but there's explosions and mass deaths and so on. So he actually, uh, for a while, he stopped all pipelines working and meant and uh, ensured that all fuel was moved by truck, which actually led to a lot of fuel shortages at the time early on in his in his tenure. But then, as ever, when you're fighting a much bigger, much more well-organized opponent, um, the cartels just managed to, to work around that. So nothing has really changed. But because he's sort of pinned his colors to the mast in terms of trying to, you know, do something about this particular issue, and also quite odd because, you know, he has quite a, uh, let's say, a, uh, an uncomplicated relationship with a number of other uh, cartels. I mean, he uh, only a few months ago stopped in the streets at El Chapo Guzman's hometown and greeted his mother as though they were long lost friends mm. and so on. Um, but it seems as though this is one of the things he's pinning his his presidency to. So he really wants to do something about it. It's definitely unusual for the military to go into a cartel stronghold and actually achieve anything like a victory. And the only thing that you can really say about this one is that this cartel are 
uh, really, you know, in, in the size and scale of, of cartels in this in this neck of the woods are, are relatively inconsequential. Mm, okay, interesting. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Hey, hey, listen, John, we're out of time. Um, and uh, as, as you know, we are uh, wrapping this show at the end of the week, so um, that'll be our last chat in this form. Uh, thank you so much for all your insights over the month. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, John, and getting to know you. No problem, Daryl. Hope to cross paths with you somewhere down the line in a different format. Yes, absolutely. Look forward to it. John Bonfoglio for us in Latin America, uh, in Mexico, specifically on Talk Radio this morning. It's 2.26. Stick about.